welcome to the What Scotland Thinks podcast, a series looking at the key constitutional and political debates affecting Scotland today. My name's Ian Montague, and together with Sir John Curtis and Alex Scholes, we'll be talking about the big issues surrounding Scotland's constitutional future. And today, after a bit of an extended break, we'll be reflecting on what the events of the past few weeks might mean for the independence debate. We'll be looking at how views on the monarchy might be structured both north and south of the border. John maps out the current structure of views on how an independent Scotland should be governed. And Alex takes us through some of the key findings of his and John's latest contribution to the British Social Attitude Survey report, which looks at shifting views towards the Union across the constituent nations of the UK. This is what Scotland thinks. So, obviously, we've witnessed some pretty momentous events, I suppose, John, over the past few weeks or so. And actually, I wondered if we might be able to start there today by by thinking about how the accession of a new monarch might relate to specifically the constitutional question in Scotland. And I suppose, in my mind, you know, there are, there are pretty much two questions that jump out here, right? One is, what do we know about levels of support for the kind of I suppose, overall institution of the monarchy in Scotland compared with, say, south of the border. Yeah. And I guess that feeds quite directly, I suppose, into a, into a second issue, which is, you know, do we know anything about what people's preferences might be when it comes to any potential role for the monarchy in an independent Scotland? You know, do people support this idea of continuing with the king as head of state in that situation? Or would people have a preference for a different sort of constitutional arrangement? Yeah, I think the, the question that clearly arose in the wake of the sad death of Queen Elizabeth II, well, there were twofold. I mean, the first question was, would popular support for the monarchy in Scotland survive her death? And in particular, uh, might her death mean that independence would pose more of a challenge to the future of the monarchy in Scotland uh, than might previously have been the case. So question number one was, what are the implications of the death of Queen Elizabeth II for support for the monarchy north of the border? But equally, the other question that was being asked was, what might be the implications of the substantial celebrations of the institution and the presence of the institution during the whole period of national mourning? Uh, and what might be the implications of that for support for independence in particular, you know, might the focus on this uh, substantial um, symbol of Britishness mm. serve to undermine support for independence? I think those were the two questions that were going the rounds um, in, the, in the immediate wake of the death of Elizabeth II. So let's take the first on the first. I mean, there is no doubt that the monarchy as an institution is relatively less popular in Scotland than it is in Britain. And we know this because during the course of the last couple of years, it's so happened that both focal data for British Future and Opinium and a couple of polls that they did uh, just before um, last year's Scottish Parliament election asked the same question in polling both north and south of the border, um, asking people about um, their attitudes towards the monarchy. Now, fo focal data, you know, said to people, oh, you know, Queen Elizabeth has reigned for 70 years. When her reign comes to an end, what's your view about uh, the monarchy? Uh, you know, should we keep it or would it be right at you know, the end of the Queen's reign to move on and become a republic? Now, it has to be said, and, you know, British social attitudes data uh, uh, also confirms this, 
that you know support for the monarchy while still clearly the majority view across the UK as a whole is certainly by no means a universal view and you know these two polls when they asked about Britain as a whole we had 55% in case of one and 58% in the case of the other saying that we should keep the monarchy and around a quarter to a three in ten saying that the UK should become a republic um, but in Scotland, you know, those n numbers were now both polls in Scotland got 45% support for keeping the monarchy, 36% uh, saying it should move to republic. So you could certainly see there that the monarchy as an institution is somewhat less popular north of the border. And that certainly on the occasion of the Queen's death, which of course is um, what we now were, uh, were now witnessing, that support for uh, uh, the uh, monarchy was rather lower in Scotland than it was across the UK as a whole. There's still uh, the plurality position. And then obviously, therefore, the question that it perhaps arose is, well, although the SNP might be saying that an independent Scotland should keep the monarchy, was this would this indeed be the majority view now that uh, Queen Elizabeth II was no longer with us. Well, of course, we, we don't know exactly what position is on that at the moment, but certainly amount of polling in recent years asking people what should happen in the event of independence. Now, polling wasn't entirely consistent, but I think one can get a sense that probably Scotland becoming an independent country would not have made much difference to the level of support for um, keeping uh, the monarchy. So, for example, Panabase, when it said to people, if Scotland becomes independent, do you think we should keep the monarch as head of state or should Scotland have an elected head of state? Well, it was 47% for the monarchy, 35% for the elected head of state, which of course is very, very similar to those numbers from focal data and opinion uh, that I've already uh, quoted. Now, it's true that in another poll, opinion did ask people if Scotland became independent, should it keep the monarchy with a British monarch as the head of state, or should it become a republic? And asked in that way, actually public divided evenly between keeping the monarchy and keeping the head of state. But I suspect the use of that word British hmm. may well be pushed some people in uh, that direction. Um, and indeed, as a counterpoise to that, Another poll by Savannah Comres, April of last year. Um, if Scotland were an independent country, would you support or oppose keeping the Queen or a monarch of Scotland's head of state? And notice the reference to the Queen, the then current incumbent. Um, we had a half of people in Scotland saying we should keep the Queen or the monarch, and uh, less, slightly less than a quarter who were opposed. So I think the answer is that so long as, in the event of independence, the monarchy emphasized its Scottish roots, which of course is one of the things that we saw happen with um, the various um, ceremonies in Edinburgh uh, shortly after the Queen died and before she was transported down to London. So long as the monarchy was willing to and able to do that um, and didn't you know, come across as a British institution of a foreign country, then it may well be that in the event of independence, Scotland, there would still be at least quite a lot of support in Scotland for keeping uh, uh, the monarchy, at least for the foreseeable future. Of course, nobody can tell what would happen in the long run. And we've seen a variety of Commonwealth countries uh, gradually become republics. But in the short run, to medium run at least, probably the monarchy could survive the advent of independence. Right. And 
and I, I suppose almost taking that step further, really, it's, you know, really interesting to think about what people's views might be on whether an independent Scotland should be, you know, a constitutional monarchy or a republic, for example. But actually, in terms of the independence debate itself, there's possibly almost an even more central question here, right, which is, you know, is there a relationship between what people think about the monarchy and what they think about independence? And if there is, do we think that a change in monarch is actually likely to change people's minds on the constitutional question itself? Well, I mean, the first thing to say, there absolutely is a link between attitudes towards the constitutional question and attitudes uh, uh, towards the monarchy. For example, you know, a recent panel-based poll, 72% of those who currently back the union said that Scotland should keep the crown. Only 14% wanted elected head of state. In contrast, amongst those who were currently in favour of independence, only 26% wanted the monarchy, 60% wanted the republic. In an opinion poll, you know, similar numbers. So there's definitely yeah, quite a strong relationship. Um, but you have to ask yourself, what is the causal connection between the two? Do you think that support for the monarchy is affecting people's attitudes towards the constitutional question? Or do we think that it's people's attitudes towards the constitutional question and their sense of Scottishness that affects their attitudes uh, uh, towards the monarchy? And I think a lot of people who were suggesting that you know, all this celebration of monarchy and royalty that was going on during the period of national mourning, um, that this would help from their perspective to reduce support uh, for independence because of this focus on the monarchy and the monarchy is you know one of the bits of the union that uh, people like now i think even there you could argue both ways because yes on the one hand we're getting all this uh, reminder of the institution of the monarchy but of course at the same time the monarchy was also losing what was undoubtedly its most popular member is Queen Elizabeth II, and then she was being replaced by somebody who, although has become more popular in, in, in the course of the last few weeks, is certainly still not as uh, as popular as his mother, Viz King Charles III. Uh, but in any case, you have to ask yourself about the causal connection. Now, it's very difficult to prove, but do we think that somebody who believes that an independent Scotland would be economically better off is doubtful about the economic consequences of Brexit, would prefer to be inside the European Union and feel strongly Scottish, is going to say to themselves, yeah, but despite all of that, I do like the monarchy. The monarchy put on a good show. It shows uh, Britain and Scotland at its best. Therefore, I still want to be part of the union. Or is it more likely to be the case that somebody who uh, feels strongly British more British than they do Scottish, deeply sceptical about the economic consequences of independence, and at least is indifferent to the question of whether or not the UK is inside or outside the European Union. Um, but, but, you know, is then the kind of person who is then likely to value the monarchy indeed as a symbol of the Union and of the Britishness uh, with which they feel at a great deal of affinity. Now, I would certainly suggest that probably the latter is the more plausible of the two. And as it happens, well, yes, we have had one opinion poll so far 
since the death of Queen Elizabeth II and you know, actually undertaken during the midst of the period of mourning, it was somewhat uh, light on sample size. It was only just over 600 with some Delta poll who also haven't done uh, much previous polling in Scotland. It was also somewhat initially misreported, but anyway, um, support for independence, once you took away the don't know is 47%, a little bit down on the 49%, which was, you know, the running average hitherto, but not to a scale that make anyone say that, you know, this is clear evidence of a decline in support for independence. It will certainly be interesting to see what the polls say in a, in a, in a few weeks' time. But I think so far, at least, probably the conclusion we have to come to, which, of course, is not necessarily the conclusion that journalists on either side of the argument wanted to come to, which is that, A, probably the constitutional question doesn't necessarily have much in the way of implications for the future of the monarchy in Scotland, see our previous answer, and B, that also that the celebration of monarchy uh, in the during the period of national mourning probably doesn't have any implications either way for the level of support uh, for independence. It's a rather boring conclusion, <laughs> but perhaps maybe the only intellectually honest one uh, that one could reasonably come to. So we've had a look there at, I suppose, the, the potential impact of, of change within one institution that has this really kind of key constitutional role in the UK and, you know, the effect that that might have on people's views towards Scotland's constitutional status. And John, you know, I think there's a, a direct link really between that question and the chapter that both you and Alex wrote in the annual British Social Attitudes report that launched last week. And the kind of overarching theme of that chapter was was constitutional reform, right? And what people might think about, you know, various aspects of, uh, I guess, the debate about how how the UK should should be governed. So I wondered, could you just give us a, a quick overview of, I guess, what the motivations were really for for exploring these kinds of questions using British Social Attitude Survey data, and also what sort of issues that data enables you to look at. Yeah, uh, we were interested in, I, I think, a couple of related questions. The first was, uh, you know, there's been during the course of the last you know, two or three years, particularly in the wake of the Brexit process, you know, quite a lot of um, constitutional uh, controversy. Most obvious one was the um, prorogation of Parliament in September 2019, which was eventually ruled. Uh, illegal uh, uh, by the Supreme Court. Um, there have been arguments uh, clearly in the wake of Partygate, etc., about the integrity of the then Prime Minister and the extent to which, uh, at least as a person, he seemed to be somebody who was much more concerned on delivering outcomes than necessarily following due process, including constitutional convention. We've seen, for example, uh, particularly uh, in respect of Scotland, a, a government that wasn't always accepting the Chinese walls of a constitutional convention, um, has legislated in devolved areas against the wishes of the Scottish Parliament, and is also minded to uh, uh, spend money in these areas. So in the wake of that uh, controversy, on some of which, at least other political parties have taken different stances, um, we were interested in the question as to whether or not the question of how Britain should be governed has become more polarized and divided between supporters of different political parties. 
whether this was something going on um, across uh, the piece. And not least of the reasons as to why this might be the this be the case, it takes us to our second question, is that one of the things that Alex and I demonstrated in last year's BSA report was that contrary to the position historically, those who are pro-EU, Europhile, voted Remain, had less trust and confidence in the way in which Britain was governed. Uh, now, since the um, uh, delivery of Brexit in January 2020. So we're therefore also interested in well, to what extent, therefore, perhaps has this mood amongst Remain voters, this lack of trust and confidence, translated into increasing questioning of the constitutional rules under which Britain is governed. Um, and you know whether or not there is a general pattern here. So we were starting with the issue of electoral reform, uh, whether or not the House of Commons should continue to be elected by the first past the post system that's currently used, or whether there should be some system of proportional representation. Because after all, in the end, it was the, fir the first past the post system that enabled a party with 45% of the vote, viz Boris Johnson's Conservatives, to be able to deliver Brexit on a minority um, of the vote. So, you know, does that lead some Remain voters to question uh, the, whatever support they may previously have for first past the post? Um, to what extent does any of this affect people's attitudes, both within England and within Scotland, towards the governance of Scotland? Do Remain voters south of the border feel a degree of sympathy? For the fact that Scotland, where a majority voted Remain, um, now find themselves outside the European Union. Um, and equally, certainly what was going on in Scotland, has Brexit made a difference to who is backing independence? And of course, equally, one can ask much the same question about Northern Ireland, and then indeed for good measure, um, we also took a look at what was going on in terms of attitudes towards um, the governance of England, including not least whether or not there should be some form of devolution in England, which again, of course, is a is a continuing debate uh, south of the border. And you know, in a sense, the reason why, and of course, insofar as Remain voters are more likely to support the Labour Party south of the border, the SNP north of the border, if indeed this process is going on, this could help to explain why there might be greater division and polarisation between the different party supporters. And you know, why does any of this matter? Well. You know, it can be argued that if you if a democracy is going to be successful in the long run, in particular, if you're going to get that crucial attribute in a democracy whereby those people who lose out, you know, their party doesn't win the election, the decision they want to be made on something like that, a Brexit doesn't get made, that they accept that that's the decision that's been made. We get what's so-called loser's consent. Um, and that, you know, given the rules of the game, which they support, they accept that decision be made. If people don't necessarily agree on the rules of the game, then you may find that it's more difficult to get consent to public policy decisions that are being made. So that was the background uh, uh, to this chapter. And, and just on top of that, then, what is it about BSA data that makes it particularly useful for, for looking at these kind of issues? So I suppose for, for, for both, you know, where people stand now, I guess, but also for how things might have, have changed over time. Yeah. One of the things that 
British sociology often enables you to do is to look at long-term changes. Um, because in a sense, what we're asking is, you know, have attitudes polarized and are they, is the pattern of attitudes towards constitutional questions different now from what it was before certainly 2020, but frankly, ideally before 2016. And um, because British sociologists together with Scottish sociologists north of the border and the Northern Ireland Life and Time Survey, which is run by a consortium headed by people at uh, Queen's University, which we have close relationships to, but it's, it's done separately. Um, because all of these surveys have been tracking attitudes towards these various constitutional questions over time, has been tracking attitudes towards um, also the European Union um, game before 2016, um, as well as regularly asking people which party they support. It provides us with a pretty unique ability to look at long-term change and to look to see whether or not the structure, the relationship between which party people support and their attitudes towards these constitutional questions, their attitude towards the European Union and their attitude towards these constitutional questions, whether these, these relationships are different now from what they were before Brexit was even voted for, let alone was implemented. And that's what we've been able to do with this. So you'll see in the chapter a lot of analysis um, so that you know, long-term trends, we can go, you know, back case of electoral reform, we can go all the way back to the mid-1980s. Um, but a lot of the detailed analysis certainly takes us through the last uh, decade or so to see how things have changed um, over the long run. And Alex, if I can just come to you, actually, you know, building on the kind of things that we've we've just heard there from John about, you know, what BSA lets you do, from your perspective, have people in the constituent nations in the UK generally become more supportive according to this data of breaking away from the UK? And if if they have, what sort of developments do you think might be actually driving that trend? Yeah, thanks Ian. Well, of course, the answer to the question depends upon the constituent nation of the UK you're referring to. Yeah. So um, in the wake of the Brexit referendum, the position um, of Northern Ireland and Scotland has obviously been in the spotlight over the past few years. So those are the two constituent nations we examined as part of this report and their constitutional positions. So if we take um, Scotland first, mm -hmm. examining attitudes in England towards the question of Scottish independence on the BSA survey, we don't really see that much change over time. Around a quarter of people in England are supportive of Scottish independence, um, but the majority of people in England are supportive of the current devolution settlement, with only a marginal proportion supporting abolishing the Scottish Parliament itself. However, if we examine um, attitudes towards Scotland on this question um, using the sister survey, the Scottish Social Attitude Survey and more recent panel data, we do see a steady increase in support over time in Scotland for Scottish independence. 
And to answer your question as to who is driving that support, um, we examined um, responses to this question by party political support in Scotland, as well as attitudes towards um, Brexit. And what we find is an increased political divergence, as John mentioned. So if we look back at data around 10 years ago in 2011 on the SSA survey, support among SNP supporters for independence was at 54%, um, but support for devolution was at 44%. So there was only a 10 percentage point gap between those two. However, if we look at the latest data in 2021, as many as 82% of SNP supporters now support independence, and only 17% support the um, current devolution settlement. If we look at the split by Remain Leave, it's a similar story. Remainers in Scotland are now much more likely to support Scottish independence than they used to um, in, in comparison with their Leave supporting counterparts. So what appears to be driving um, the increase in support for Scottish independence is um, an increased political divergence between you know, um, SNP supporters and their counterparts, as well as an increase in support among Remainers as well. And of course, those two um, as we know from research that you and John have done more recently, have, have become steadily more intertwined. SNP supporters are now much more likely to be Remainers than they previously were. Um, so it appears to be those two that are, that are driving support for Scottish independence. If we turn to Northern Ireland, it's a slightly um, different story. If we um, examine the trends in terms of attitudes within Northern Ireland itself and attitudes within um, the British mainland. What is particularly interesting is that the trends seem to be going in the opposite direction. So if we look at attitudes towards Northern Ireland's constitutional position in Britain for the BSA survey, what we find is um, a trend towards an increase in support, basically, for Northern Ireland's place in the Union. We've asked questions on BSA since the very start, you know, in 1983 on Northern Ireland's constitutional position. And throughout the 80s, 90s and early 2000s, British people in general were more supportive of um, Northern Ireland reunifying with the rest of Ireland than they were supportive of it keeping its place in the Union. However, in the more recent survey, there was basically a break in asking this question throughout the 2010s, but we've asked it again in 2021 on BSA. Actually, the proportion supporting um, Northern Ireland's place in the union is higher than um, the proportion who think that Northern Ireland should be unified with the rest of Ireland. However, if we look at attitudes in Northern Ireland using the Northern Ireland Life and Time survey, we actually see a trend in the opposite direction. I mean, support for remaining in the UK is still higher in Northern Ireland than support for reunifying, but actually um, the trend is is towards an increased support in reunification. And likewise with Scotland, what we see is an increased political divergence driving this trend. You know, Remainers in Northern Ireland are now more likely to support Northern Ireland reunifying with the rest of Ireland than they previously were. And also, whereas around a decade ago, um, supporters of Sinn Féin, there was only a 10 percentage point difference between those Sinn Féin supporters in terms of their support for either remaining in the UK or reunifying with Ireland. Now, you know, there's a 60 percentage point difference. There's a there's a large gap. So it appears that Remainers, Sinn Féin supporters are driving this increase in support for reunification in Ireland, uh, just as, you know, SNP supporters and Remainers are, are driving an increase in support for Scottish independence. Thanks very much, Alex. And I just actually wanted to touch on on one more key thing that we've got coming out of, of the latest BSA data. So essentially, I guess what we've seen is basically a higher level of support for independence in Scotland in the latest BSA data than we've seen in previous BSA surveys. And I just wondered, you know, how does that finding fit with the message that we're seeing 
coming out of you know the likes of polling data, for example, which is what we're often relying on when we're making judgments and comments on attitudes towards the constitutional question. Does it fit with the picture coming out of the polls or is the BSA data telling us something different? Yeah, sure. Um, so um, one thing to bear in mind is that uh, neither in the Scotland nor the Northern Ireland surveys we're using where we are simply are using a question that asks people in case of Scotland, should Scotland become independent or not? The, the standard yes, no question uh, of the 2014 referendum or indeed in Northern Ireland, the options were a little more complex than simply uh, staying inside the UK versus uh, unification. So I have to bear that in mind. But basically, I mean, for uh, the Scottish survey was done uh, back end of last year. It's got 52% of people saying they support independence. It was 51% uh, the last time in 2019. So there's not a great deal of difference. Um, it's broadly consistent with the message of the opinion polls, which, you know, since 2019 have fairly consistently suggested that Scotland is pretty much evenly divided down the middle on the question of its constitutional status. At the moment, the polls, it's, no, it's 49% independence, 51% the union, but it's it's not far off. So I think, you know, broadly speaking, um, what SSA is showing you is uh, fairly similar in terms of the level of support for independence. And to be honest, you know, uh, much of what we have said about the division between uh, remainers and leavers and the extent to which um, the constitutional question now determines whether people are voting for the SNP or not. Again, much of this is also there inside the opinion polls. What we've been able to do in this chapter is to pursue the analysis in a more systematic way using the same question and, 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 uh, on the same survey over time. But you know, all of this is consistent with um, a lot of uh, what we have uh, already seen. And in a sense, what we're seeing both in Scotland and in Northern Ireland, I mean, is that in a, in a sense, it almost means that there's something of a change in the meaning of nationalism in the two in the two parts of the UK. So arguably 10 years ago, quite a lot of people voted for the SNP in Scotland because they were looking to the SNP to defend Scotland's interests within the framework of the UK and thought that the SNP were best able to do that. Equally in Northern Ireland, quite a lot of people who are voting for Sinn Féin were voting for Sinn Féin because they thought that Sinn Féin would be best able to defend the interests of the nationalist community again within the framework of the existing institutions, including not least the Good Friday Agreement. What now seems to be the case, however, is that in both parts of the UK, the majority of people who are voting for the principal nationalist party are voting because they're hoping that that party will be enabled, that are voting for that party will be helping to deliver, in the case of Scotland independence, in the case of Northern Ireland reunification. And to that extent, at least, the question of the constitutional status of those two parts of the UK has now just become so much more of a political issue. And that, you know, you know Nicola Sturgeon in her a speech back in June saying she wanted to hold a referendum at the, in October of next year, her plan B is, well, if I can't have the referendum, then I will just say that, you know, the next general election, UK general election, will be a vote on the referendum question and on Scotland's constitutional status. Well, to be honest, we're already pretty close to that. 
in the way that people have already been voting at recent elections in Scotland. And not that many people would have to change their votes before we actually get to a position where, yes, in effect, the next UK election is going to be a de facto referendum, irrespective of what either Nicola Sturgeon or any of the union's politicians uh, claim it to be. Before we go, we'd like to say thank you to the ESRC and especially their UK in a change in Europe programme who promote high quality independent research into the constitutional future of the UK and its relationship with the EU and who fund the work that we do here at What Scotland Thinks too. And their website is a really great source of information, not just on the issues that we cover, but you can access a real wealth of high quality research that goes well beyond the realm of public attitudes. So please do head over to ukandeu.ac.uk and have a look around if you'd like to dig a little deeper into any aspect of the Brexit process that you might be particularly interested in. To access some of the data that we've been discussing today, please do head to whatscotlandthinks.org. And finally, thanks to John. Thank you to Alex and goodbye from all of us.